Welcome once again to live from Pat Conroy Literary Center, author interview podcast here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Jonathan Haupt, executive director of our nonprofit Conroy Center and co-editor of Our Prince of Scribes, writers remember Pat Conroy. Each month here on the show, I have the great pleasure of shining our spotlight on a writer or writers as we get to share in an hour of conversation and readings and get to learn a little more about their writing lives and ultimately from their writing lives. Tonight on our very first show of 2021, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Heather Bell Adams, an award-winning writer from North Carolina. Heather's debut novel, Maranatha Road, was published in 2017 by West Virginia University Press and won the gold medal for Best of the Southeast in the Independent Publisher Book Awards, the Ippies, as they're known, and was also selected for Deep South Magazine's fall-winter reading list that year. Heather's second novel, recently published, The Good Look, uh, The Good Luck Stone, excuse me, uh, was released last year by a relatively new press, Haywire Books. The Good Luck Stone has been listed on recommended reading lists from Deep South, Writer's Bone, The Big Other, and BuzzFeed. The novel, in an earlier form, was winner of the Grassic Short Novel Prize and a finalist in several other competitions, including the William Faulkner William Wisdom Prize and the Ron Rash Fiction Award. As a writer of short fiction, Heather has won both the James Dill Fiction Prize and the Carrie McRae Memorial Literary Award, and her work has been published in a lengthy list of journals, including Thomas Wolfe Review, Atticus Review, Pembroke Magazine, Broad River Review, Gravel, and Pettigrew Review. Heather is originally from Henderson, North Carolina, and now lives in Raleigh with her family, where she works as a lawyer, volunteers on the fiction staff of the Raleigh Review, and has become something of an expert on the work of our friend Ron Rash, all of which we hope to talk to you about tonight. Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you this evening and talking about books and reading. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was uh, about a year ago, almost to the day, that uh, you first contacted me about the Good Luck Stone, and I was excited to finally have an opportunity uh, to talk to you about it, to do incorporate it into our Conroy Center program. So, so glad this worked out. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure here on the Authors on the Air Network, I should mention that uh, this is not your first time on the network. You were also a guest on Charlotte Readers uh, with Landis Wade. And I got to uh, listen to that podcast. And also I saw a really wonderful interview that you did for SEBA, Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance Reader Meet Writer Program, with another friend, with Wiley Cash. So uh, I have the benefit of having seen and heard a couple of other conversations, but I think we'll wander into some new territory uh, tonight in our conversation as well. Excellent. I'm so excited. We have a really wonderful friend at the Conroy Center who uh, who has given me a good question to ask in, in these uh, conversations. Uh, Mary Alice Monroe, New York Times bestseller, uh, tells a really wonderful story about being in kindergarten or maybe it was first grade where she was being asked that question that we always get asked at, at such a young age when we don't necessarily have an answer. What do you want to be when you grow up? And she didn't quite have the language for it at that age. So she said something about having this uh, great love of books and of storytelling. And her teacher said, oh, it sounds like you want to be an author. And that's a word she had never heard before. And she said, when she tells the story, which she does often, she said, I finally knew that my dream had a name. And I have always mm -hmm. loved that sentence. I've always mm -hmm. loved that sentiment. 
So, Heather, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer? When did your dream have a name? Well, I love that story, too, and it just gives such insight into her personality, I think. So I love that. Um, I did grow up a big bookworm, and, you know, my favorite thing to do when I was growing up in Hendersonville was to go to the library. I was always begging my parents to go. And, you know, at the same time, my younger sister was always begging me to come play outside with her. And I just wanted to stay inside reading. Um, So from an early age, I did want to, to write. I didn't really know, of course, in what capacity or what name to put on it. Um, Growing up, I, (laughs) I started a neighborhood newsletter or I think I called it a newspaper, you know. Um, oh, nice. It's mostly about, right, it's mostly about the antics of our pets, which were outdoor cats, and the other, you know, pets in the neighborhood. Uh, a lot about the animals. <laughs> it's called the Canuga Chronicle. We grew up on Canuga Road. Um, so you see, it did start early, the desire to put pen to paper and, and craft some sort of story. That is a storyteller's instinct at a very young age. That, you know, that's fascinating. I'm sure people loved reading about your outdoor cats and their own pets. Well, when, when... <laughs> well that, that kind of support and feedback is meaningful to any writer at a young age. So even if it was a uh, pretend, I'm glad, I'm glad there was some support for the, uh, for the neighborhood cat-centric newsletter. Uh, how did that manifest over time is that something that always stuck with you or did you go in some other directions and circle back around to it later has has writing always been a part of your life from that point I would say in fits and starts it has Um, I went to undergrad at Duke and I was an English major had just the best time with that I mean I thought being able to read these wonderful books and talk about them with other people who had read them and write papers about them. I just, I almost couldn't believe that that was what I had to do for homework, you know, because it was just so much fun to do that. Um, So I had a great experience there. I wrote um, some short fiction when I was at Duke, um, just kind of off and on. It wasn't something that I really spent a lot of time on, but just here and there I wrote some short fiction. Then I went to law school Um, also at Duke, and shortly after starting my law career in Raleigh, uh, my husband and I, my husband's also a lawyer, um, we had a son, and and so, of course, when he was younger, it was a little bit more difficult to juggle the law career and and being a mom and all of just sort of the day-to-day activities and and to-do lists, so I wouldn't say that I intentionally uh, put writing to the side. It was just that the reality meant I didn't have a whole lot of time for it. So as our son Davis got older, I picked it back up again. Again, not in any sort of intentional, conscious way, but just as I had a little bit more free time, that's what I, you know, I'd always been reading in my free time. But as I had the opportunity to uh, start writing again, I did. I wrote short stories for a while, kind of tried to, continually improve my writing and um, focus on short fiction for quite some time. And then I, of course, always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to try a novel. So Maranatha Road was the first uh, novel that I wrote and um, kind of took it from there and just 
just fitting it in. Again, I still work as a lawyer um, right now. So it's something that I really look forward to uh, turning my attention to whenever I have those free moments in the day. Yours is a, is an empowering story, and it's, uh, I hear variations on it in what we do at the Conroy Center all the time from folks who had the dream uh, to be a writer, to write in, in some sense, and put it on hold to do the other things that, that their lives required of them, their families needed from them, and they've circled back around to it. Or, or they discovered at a, at a much later age that they had uh, creative ambitions. And, it's, and I think it's important to say sort of over and over again, it's, it's never too late to come back to it. It's never too late to discover it for the first time either. And uh, what a wonderful ambition to want to write a novel and then to do it and then to have it win an Ippy Award too, to have that kind of validation and response. That must have been very empowering for you at, at that point. Thank you. Well, yeah, it has been a really good experience for me. And in part, I would say it's because of the other writers and readers and, you know, supporters of, of books that I've met along the way. Um, fairly early on when I was working on Maranatha Road, I met the novelist Amy Green. I don't know if you know Amy. Uh, she's from Eastern Tennessee. I do, Tennessee. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I had read A Willie Morris Award winner, too. Yes. Exactly. And I had, um, Bloodroot was one of those books that as soon as I finished reading it, I remember distinctly the moment. Um, I literally clasped the book to my chest and just held it there for a moment because I just loved it so much. And when I saw that Amy was doing a, a seminar for writers, it actually worked out really well. I had depositions for work that got canceled. And so sort of at the last minute, I went up and uh, met her in person and participated in the seminar. And she was so, you know, just, just to be able to meet her, of course, after I had loved her book so much was just, a, you know, a, a great experience. But also she was so warm and friendly and encouraging to me. She read, you know, pages that I had written and gave me feedback on them. And I really, I, I came back from that uh, seminar and just finished Maranatha Road kind of just in a frenzy because I just was so encouraged by that time with her. And I have really found that throughout um, the experience of both Maranatha and the Good Luck Stone and just other projects in between that when you're able to spend time with people who, you know, you you admire, um, people whose writing you admire or perhaps other readers who enjoy books similar to the ones you enjoy, it's so invigorating. It's so, you know, it sounds cliche to say that it's inspiring. So I wish there was another word for that, but I've really found that to be true. I find that to be the case too, that uh, this community of writers that we're in can be very welcoming. It's not universally true anymore than it would be true of any family, but in our, uh, more often than not, we find writers who, who can be very supportive and, in the acknowledgments to the good luck stone, you name a bunch of writers who I know, and, and I get the sense that uh, that they have been advocates and mentor figures for you as well. Kimberly Brock, Julie Cantrell, uh, Jane Smiley as well. I mean, it seems like yeah. in many ways you are a success story of, of writers' retreats and writers' workshops. And <laughs> right. the, the, <laughs> 
the idea that these things are worthwhile, that good people teach them and connections are forged in, in those classes that are of, of value beyond the experience itself. Absolutely true, yes. And I'm so glad you mentioned those wonderful authors. I, Jane Smiley, I worked with at Looking Glass uh, Writers Conference in Brevard, and we worked together on the first chapter of The Good Luck Stone, which is still the first chapter today. You know, a lot changes, of course, in the revision process. But the first chapter um, is something that I worked on with Jane Smiley, and she was instrumental in improving that and making sure that the character of Audrey, particularly being 90 years old, um, came across in those pages. Um, Jane was really pretty funny when we met. She just started laughing, and she said, here you are with this protagonist who's 90 years old. I was picturing an elderly woman. And, you know, I guess at the time I was in my early 40s, and so, yes, it was really amazing to work with her. And Kimberly Brock has been uh, just a tremendous friend and support of, of mine. We call each other soul sisters. <laughs> Uh, I re- again, I, I guess I conceived of the Good Luck Stone uh, with Kimberly at a Tinderbox writers retreat that she ran out at uh, Sullivan's Island, and then we've been, you know, fast friends ever since that experience. And of course, I cannot um, keep from mentioning Julie Cantrell, who I worked with Julie. Well, I. I've long been an admirer of Julie's work and especially perennials. I mean, all of her books, but, you know, most recently uh, her novel perennials. And I worked with Julie in an editorial capacity in her editorial capacity on the good luck stone. And she is the person who pointed out to me that I had to really choose. So just, just to give everyone a background, Audrey Thorpe is the main character. She's a 90 year old socialite in Savannah, Georgia, with a secret that comes back to haunt her. And then we have Laurel Eaton, who is Audrey's caretaker. And for the longest time, I tried to have Laurel and Audrey uh, have equal stories. I have tried to have them both be the main character and have you know equally compelling backstories and equally interesting present-day stories and that sort of thing. Well, Julie is the first person. She called me in the middle of reading it and said, I just have to tell you, you've got to pick. And it's clearly Audrey's story. So you're going to need. And I said, but I love Laurel. And she had this happen and that happened. And, you know, no, no, no. Julie said, you've got to effectively push Laurel to the background um, because right now you have your two main characters competing with each other. And this is obviously Audrey Thorpe's story. You need to really make sure that the reader understands that and knows who the main character is from the beginning. And that advice really, I think, turned the book around. I had, you know, I just didn't know the direction to take it. And as soon as she said that, it really resonated with me. I thought, well, I mean, it seems so obvious and it seems so obvious now, but she was the first person to say that to me. And she was absolutely right, of course. Julie seems to always be right. Don't don't tell her I said that, but uh, it, it does seem to happen a lot in our in our conversations. Uh, and what, really what fantastic advice to get too. Yeah. So, 
so we've uh, you've introduced us to a couple of characters, and this might be a good time to turn it over to a reading so we can get to uh, learn a little more about those folks uh, from your words in the novel. So uh, whenever you're ready, I would love to hear a reading. Sure. Excellent. Okay, so this is going to be a brief excerpt from Chapter 1, which is when we first encounter Audrey Thorpe. Um, and this it's a dual timeline story, so I'll just say that Chapter 1 is uh, – takes place in 2010 savannah georgia Uh, chapter one wearing the brooch was a risk but surely no one would recognize it audrey thorpe lingered by the wall in the lobby of savannah's jetson center for the arts waiters circulated with trays of champagne and bite-sized crab cakes while the museum's donors mingled and congratulated themselves on another fine exhibition audrey leaned against the linen skirted table for support and returned a friend's wave across the crowd. At her age, the room's pale stone floor was almost as treacherous as an ice rink. She'd gone her entire life, 90 years, without a broken bone. Now her sense of balance worsened with each passing day. At home, she resorted to using a cane when she felt unsteady, but she didn't like to be seen with it on social occasions. The last of the evening sun filtered in through the glass facade overlooking Telfair Square. Trying to quell her impatience, she touched the brooch pinned to her dress. The cloudy green stone, flawless jade, still as smooth as when she first held it long ago, had been carved to resemble a hibiscus bloom. A tiny seed pearl glimmered from its center. As soon as her granddaughter approached, Audrey dropped her hand, which had begun to tremble. She didn't want Deanna to notice the brooch. This particular jewel hadn't seen the light of day since the war. Deanna, a 38-year-old woman who monogrammed practically everything she touched, straightened the name tag pinned to her navy sheath. It had been printed with Deanna Gayton, but she'd added Thorpe with a hyphen in blue ink. Obsessed with social standing, she used the family's name every chance she got. Are you looking forward to the exhibit? Deanna tilted her head to appraise Audrey's dress, made of pale green silk printed with purple irises. She didn't appear to notice the brooch. Then again, when it came to the family jewelry, Deanna had always been most interested in her grandmother's diamond-encrusted watch, an anniversary gift from Audrey's late husband. Deanna repeated her question about the exhibit, louder, even though Audrey had heard her perfectly well the first time. Her granddaughter often spoke to her the same way she spoke to her 10-year-old son. Audrey nodded. As a member of the museum's board, she'd studied the oversized color photographs of ancient Filipino artifacts a stem cup and footed jarlet discovered in late Alita cave, a copper plate inscribed in coffee, blue and white porcelain from Palawan, a death mask made of gold, burial jars from the late Neolithic period, some with traces of their original red paint. It was astonishing, really, what survived, hidden deep within the earth while battles raged. Between the echoing height of the room and the rustling of programs, Audrey couldn't make out what the curator said. But as soon as the speech was concluded, she shuffled forward. Of all the exhibits she'd toured over the years, this one would be the most personal, the most meaningful. With each step, she tried to work out the kink in her hip. She felt more anxious than she'd let on to her granddaughter, who had no idea about the time she'd spent in the Philippines. No matter how difficult it might prove, she wanted, needed to stay calm. Although tonight might offer closure, it was a private matter. After she'd seen the exhibit, she would return to her life unchanged, without so much as a hint of any personal connection. 
But when Audrey glimpsed the map on the wall, her breath quickened, and a sepia tone swam before her eyes. Back when she saw the archipelago for the first time from the ship, so many years ago and from such a distance, the islands looked like nothing more than specks of coral. Here, the music drifting from the museum speakers sounded misplaced. The traditional gongs and lizard skin drums a stark contrast to her memories of Jimmy Dorsey and Glenn Miller on the Armed Forces Radio. Slightly dizzy, she grabbed a velvet rope, separating her from the display of clay and hematite pottery. Perhaps coming here had been a mistake. Thank you. It's a, it's a beautiful scene. What a way to open a novel and give us such insight into Audrey as a character. Also, the, the inner workings of Savannah, which really becomes a character unto itself in the novel as well. Curious about how you decided to set the novel there, what, what fascination you might have with Savannah the city. Yes. Well, I have been going to Savannah for many years. When I was in law school, my husband and I both worked on Savannah one summer. Uh, he had worked there prior to law school for the historic Savannah Foundation, and so he sort of introduced it to me. Um, and then we have been going there for a vacation as a family kind of ever since. Uh, while, let's see, I think it was after I finished writing The Good Luck Stone, but Somewhat recently, my mother-in-law actually moved to Savannah, so she lives there now, and we have uh, even more opportunity to go down and visit and stay with her. Um, I think it's the kind of place, you know, it's a very uh, very elegant, beautiful, historic place where you just feel like around every corner there is some something of historical significance that happened or some story that you can just imagine had to have occurred there, you know, however many hundreds of years ago. And so when we would go there, I would walk around and admire these, you know, the gas lanterns and the cobblestone streets and the uh, these mansions that had been, you know, had withstood war and hurricane and everything else. Um, and I really always wondered who, who lives in these houses and what's their story. So, that's sort of where the seed for the good luck stone came from is imagining this character who is on all the right committees and all the right boards around town. Her family's given money, their names are on plaques and so on and so forth. But she's not really the same person everybody thinks she is. You know, she has this past and she has this secret that she wouldn't dare share with anybody in Savannah society. Um, and so that's really kind of what kicked off the story for me. Did you know immediately that you wanted to write about a character who was this age, who who would have some connection to World War II, to the Pacific Theater? How did the pieces align for, for this particular story and its two timelines? Well, I did have that thought pretty early on, in part because I enjoy I enjoy a dual timeline story myself as a reader, and I enjoy a lot of the great novels we have about World War II, but I did notice that so many of them were set in Europe, um, which is fine, and, you know, there's a lot of great, <laughs> great stories set in the European theater, but I did kind of wonder, well, 
why don't we have more World War II stories set in the South Pacific? Not that there aren't any, but there just aren't as many. Uh, so I, I did pretty early on want Audrey to have had some sort of experience in World War II, but specifically in the South Pacific as opposed to Europe. And so I did a lot of research on what was going on in the South Pacific during World War II and, um, you know, made notes for various, uh, you know, battles or historical, significant historical events. And when I read about, uh, of course, uh, the Battle of Bataan and the uh, flight to Corregidor and all of that, that that began to interest me. And then I read about... um, nurses who were taken prisoner by the Japanese and and then a smaller group of nurses who had been rescued some by helicopter some by plane not helicopter but some by plane and some by submarine um, just immediately before the others were taken prisoner and as soon as I read about that occurring I really could picture these characters there and I began to feel the emotions that they must have felt, or at least I could start to imagine that, what it must have felt like to to be left behind, to know that you faced almost certain capture and imprisonment while, you know, some other nurses with whom you had served, perhaps women with whom you had become really close friends, um, had been rescued. And, and we're off to freedom. And so it was that moment uh, when I realized, you know, that, that has to happen <laughs> in this story. I kind of built the rest of the World War II storyline around that, that moment needing to occur. And so that turned into, as, the story, as I continued drafting and working on the story, I, I came up with a, a trio of nurses, three women, who serve together, who become, you know, very good friends. They bond, of course, through all that they uh, endure together. And so fairly early on, it's not really a spoiler to say, because I think I say it in the first, you know, 20, 30 pages, that one of the three gets rescued, uh, one is left behind, and then within a year, another, the other one is dead. So each of the three has this various, um, you know, different path. It's a fascinating story, uh, not only what you, what you do with it in a novel, but the, uh, the historical moment itself, that we have this group of nurses, some of whom will, will come home and, and know freedom, knowing that they've got friends left behind who've not only been captured, but will continue to serve as, in their capacity as nurses while they're captured, while, they, while they're effectively imprisoned. It's really just sort of a remarkable historical moment, a story I'd never heard before, and I'm grateful to you for introducing me to that. But uh, you've mentioned our trio, and I think that we should spend a little more time with the two we haven't met yet, Kat and Penny. Could you tell us a little bit about those characters and, and sort of where they come from? Yes. So I have Audrey Thorpe, uh, this wealthy young woman from Kentucky, uh, immediately upon arrival in Manila in the Philippines, meet these two other young women, Kat and Penny. Um, Kat is from Tennessee. She grew up in a children's home, uh, you know, not very much money, no family, 
she's very, very uh, beautiful and elegant, sort of polished to a fine sheen. Um, I wouldn't say that she is the weakest of the three, but, you know, she she is a little bit, I would say, ill-equipped for what is about to befall her. And so the other two are a little bit protective of her in a way. Uh, Penny is from Wilmington, North Carolina. She is, I think I describe her in the book as sturdy and ready, and she spends a lot of time outside, and she's muscular and strong, and uh, she's strong both physically and mentally and emotionally. So right from the start, when these three women, are, they arrive in Manila, the war is not there yet, but of course everyone senses that it's around the corner. Uh, they are really honest with each other and forthright about their fears and just the uncertainty that they're all facing. And so fairly early on in their friendship, they promise each other that they will stick by each other no matter what happens. They are there for each other. So that promise between the three of them is is important as the, as the book progresses. And the brooch that we heard about in the little excerpt I read from Chapter 1, um, that comes up fairly early in the World War II part where uh, Penny finds uh, a craftswoman at kind of a local market and buys matching brooches for the three of them. And there were only three like it ever made. And, you know, it's, um, again, it's a bonding thing between the three women, but they have these matching jade brooches and jade is meant to convey good luck or protection to the wearer. So that's where the title of the book comes from. That is, in fact, the, the good luck stone of the title, yes. The, the novel has so much to say and in such a, a deeply powerful way about the notion of friendship, the limitations of friendship, uh, the possibility of forgiveness and redemption among friends, too, not just in terms of the relationship between the trio of nurses, but also in the present day in, in the relationship between Audrey and Deanna, who we met a little bit in that excerpt, and Laurel, who you mentioned as well. So could you tell us a little bit about the origins of the other modern-day characters? Yes. So Laurel Eaton, as I mentioned, is hired as Audrey Thorpe's caretaker. Audrey is 90 years old. She still lives alone in a mansion on Victory Drive. She does not think that she needs a caretaker. (laughs) She feels adamant, in fact, that she does not. her granddaughter Deanna feels otherwise and, and to be fair has some evidence backing up her position um, that Audrey might need some help around the house and shouldn't be driving and that sort of thing. Um, so here we have Laurel Eaton who is a somewhat down on her luck uh, middle-aged woman uh, somewhat recent transplant to Savannah from Western North Carolina. I had to throw that in there since I'm from Western North Carolina. Uh, and uh, And Laurel has this son, Oliver, who's 10 years old, who has, I try not to get into the specifics, but Audrey, uh, excuse me, Oliver has uh, some learning challenges and needs a lot of special help at school. And because of that, he is enrolled in this fancy, expensive private school uh, with Audrey's great-grandson, Ford. And so that's how Laurel uh, sort of enters Audrey's orbit, if you will. And she needs the money. She desperately needs a job. She takes the job as Audrey's caretaker. And I think it's 
surprised to find that this woman who might otherwise have been somewhat closed off or snobbish is actually a, a really kind and, and generous and open person. And they uh, somewhat quickly fall into just a very easy, comfortable relationship. Um, they share with each other to the point where, you know, you might actually start to think of them as friends, despite the age difference, the societal differences, that sort of thing. Um, Audrey also has the opportunity to meet Laurel's son, Oliver. Uh, Laurel brings Oliver to Audrey's house um, when he's out of school sometimes. And so, again, that gives Audrey the opportunity to get to know uh, Laurel's family a little better and Laurel's son. And, um, the the theme of friendship comes into play there, too, because Oliver being new at school and new in town and 10 years old <laughs> is struggling himself with how do you make friends and what does it mean to be a friend and how do I make friends at my new school? And so uh, I try to weave that in, you know, without without being heavy-handed about it, hopefully, but, but just Laurel gives Oliver advice about how to be friends that, you know, means something different to Audrey when she hears those words, right? Or she, she might agree or disagree with how um, the, the present day discussions about friendship go. But that is definitely a thread that is woven throughout the story. Really, in some ways, I didn't even plan. Um, I would say a lot of the scenes with Oliver and him talking about making friends at school I didn't really plan that out. It wasn't intentional so much as it just kind of came out as I wrote the story. It becomes such an interesting parallel to the experiences of, of the adults in the novel and of, of the female characters in both timelines too. So accidental or otherwise, it, it, it adds depth, it adds layers to the novel and it works really well. The novel also seems to have quite a bit to say about the notion of family and what truly makes a family. Is it simply biological or is it uh, uh, more than that, something entirely different than that perhaps as well? And I want to be very protective of revelations in the plot, although I'm sure it's great fun to talk to book clubs who've actually read the book and get to have in-depth conversations about what happens in the last fourth of the novel. But it does seem, uh, as I say, to have something important to say about about the notion of family and what truly makes a family. Is that intentional? Is that something you as a writer wanted to delve into? Or is that too sort of a happy accident of what happened along the way? Um, I would say some of both, honestly, because I really, I kept thinking about friendship and what it, what friends are willing to do for each other, what sacrifices friends are willing to make for each other. Um, and I think that kind of organically leads into thinking about friends as family uh, or at least as found family, right? And this notion of, you know, well, what would you do for your brother or what would you do for your best friend? You know, sometimes it's the same analysis that, that you would go through. In other words, you, you know the people whom you love, you're, you're willing to do a lot for them. There is a, a line, or two lines, I should say, fairly late in the novel that seem fairly straightforward, uh, but they, they resonate powerfully in that moment. It's simply this. We look out for one another. It's what friends do. There's a, an inherent sense of commitment there, not just a, of a moment, but of a, of a lifetime. 
And there's uh, a novelist from uh, from Columbia, South Carolina, Carla Dameron, who wrote a book called The Stone Necklace, uh, which also incidentally has a piece of jewelry in it, as the title would imply, <laughs> and has sort of a sort of you know a similar uh, symbol in that novel. But Carla's a, a social worker uh, by training, and she shared something recently, and I'll point out she didn't write it. She shared it, although it does sort of echo as sentiments that she has. That uh, you know, one of the one of the sort of best and worst things about American culture is that we have this strong leaning toward heroism and not always caregiving. Meaning, you know, we're going to rush into the burning shed and save the puppy, or we're going to try and right. do a Heimlich maneuver on someone we see choking in a, in a restaurant, or we're going to drop a couple of dollars in the cup of a homeless person, but to actually mm-hmm. try and solve the problem of homelessness or systemic mm. racism or whatever that really sort of takes a commitment over time uh, is not something that comes naturally to everyone. And yet in your novel, you have these nurses and you have Laurel who are caregivers in, in some sense of that word, who seem to be mm-hmm. drawn into these moments of making a long-term commitment of investing themselves fully into the care of someone else's life. Mm-hmm. What what about that? Is this really a novel about what it means to care as much as it is to be uh, a novel about friendship? I think I think you're right. I think you hit on something there. And you know, going back to the nurses, I liked what you pointed out earlier, the historical fact that even after they were taken prisoner, the group of nurses, I think it was 70 something of them, 77 nurses, um continued to serve as nurses while they were prisoners of war, (laughs) which is just astounding to me. Um, And it was not for a few months. It was for a few years. Uh, It was from May of 1942. They were liberated in February of 1945. Um, So that's pretty remarkable to me on the nurse side of it. And then in the present day, or roughly present day, 2010, um, the math doesn't work out right if we (laughs) we bring it all the way to present day. Yeah. Um, right. But uh but in the in the roughly present day storyline, um that comes into play in part I try to explore that with uh Laurel and the discussion she has with her husband, Jay, who is just a little bit more jaded. He's a little bit more guarded. Um, he has a little bit of reverse snobbishness where he feels like somebody who is wealthy just intrinsically cannot be a good person and Laurel has some discussions with him some of them I think I I wrote more than appear in the book we we cut some of them out but he almost views Laurel as being naive right because here she's just she's trying to think the best of everybody and she's telling him oh Laurel uh, excuse me Audrey um, Audrey's a good person she wouldn't have left town if there wasn't a good reason and I'm sure she didn't mean to get me in trouble and and that sort of thing. She, Laurel, desperately clings to that belief that she has in in Laurel in Audrey, as being uh, essentially a good person, or as being someone who wouldn't intentionally hurt her. Whereas Laurel's husband is telling her, you know, you need to watch out. <laughs> Don't get in too deep with these people. Um, maintain your distance. You know, keep keep that boundary between you and the Thorpe family. You're not one of them. You're never going to be one of them. You're not in their circle. And 
floral purse because she feels that she really has gotten to know Audrey. And as you say, she has cared for Audrey in many senses of that word. And it's hard for her, and I don't think I've explained it in the story, um, after several weeks of this successful caregiving relationship, Laurel shows up for work one day and Audrey has disappeared. She's nowhere to be found. And so then Laurel has this question, do I search for her? Do I try to look into this? Do I even maybe go after her, leave town and go looking for her? Or, as my husband suggests, do I just mind my own business? (laughs) And so to get back, to circle back to the question about caring for others, you get to that moment where, well, what does it mean to care for someone? Does it mean when things get a little thorny or difficult that you just retreat to yourself and become an island unto yourself? Or does it mean you perhaps you leave your comfort zone because you do care for that other person or because the way you demonstrate your care for them, especially a 90-year-old woman who might need some help, <laughs> Uh, is that you you go after them. You do what you can to try to help them. There are sort of parallel moments uh, in both timelines where someone is faced with that choice to to stay or go. What level of obligation does friendship bring to you? What what manner of service do you owe a friend simply by virtue of, of sharing a moment with them too? The novel seems to have quite a lot to say about that, and yet it's come out at a time when it's particularly challenging for us to make connections to one another, uh, given our pandemic circumstances. So I wonder what it's been like for you to to have a novel that's so much about forging connections person-to-person, friend-to-friend, come out at a time when that's particularly challenging. What it's been like to take the book out into a a pandemic world? (laughs) Well, challenging is definitely an appropriate word. And it it is funny that you mentioned that about connections with people and with friends. It's hard to do that these days. It really is. And having to resort to seeing someone on a computer screen or having a phone call with them where, you know, you might otherwise be uh, at a social gathering with them or going on a hike with them or, you know, with those sort of in-person um, gatherings, it, it's really hard. To ha- even I mean, I'm I'm quite introverted, as I know a lot of writers and readers are, and and so I I don't mind it as much as an extrovert would. But but still, I miss that so much that in-person connection with friends and loved ones. And, you know, my hope is because I always try to be optimistic and look at the bright side. I. I do think to some extent it has made me and others uh, not take that for granted so that when we get back, assuming at some point, knock on wood, we get back to some semblance of normalcy, um, we will be so grateful to have those in-person encounters and, again, you know, not take them for granted, um, but really spend quality time with each other and be so glad to do it. I would also say that a lot of the uh, online events have gone better than I thought they would. You know, it was hard to envision before this all started how many online events we would have and and just, you know, what's the energy going to be like? Is it going to feel 
intimate or is it going to feel distant? And, you know, I've really been very pleasantly surprised at that and about how as these online events go or, you know, phone calls, whatever it might be, you are still able just through the course of the conversation and the give and take to establish some sort of intimacy and to feel, even if they're really not in your living room with them, at least sometimes you feel like they are. And so that's, that's been a pleasant surprise to me. Also, you know, the people who are geographically spread out who are then able to join events that they otherwise, you know, I had teachers from when I was growing up who um, would never otherwise be able to come to my event, one of my events. Um, you know, here they are logged on to the, to the Zoom event or whatever it might be. And that's, that's extremely meaningful and touching. Um, so I think, I think, uh, you know, there'll be a new normal at some point, and maybe we will take some of those with us as we go. It's certainly been our experience at the Conroy Center as well, and, and with uh, instructional workshops as well as author programs, too, that uh, people who would never have been able to participate in person are not only participating, but they're in just enjoying the heck out of it, too, and so grateful for the opportunity that it's uh, it's been a, a, a blessing of sorts to discover all of these people who wanted to be involved in what we were doing and had not had the had not had the conduit to do that until until we started zooming everything or Facebook living everything and now suddenly they're there and it's tremendously meaningful to them and to us to do that and you've had a really wonderful group of, of advocates on your side too, the Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance, for example, SIBA bookstores have been hand-selling your book. They've all been tremendously supportive of it. And your publisher, too, uh, who I mentioned in our introduction, seems to be doing a remarkable job, not, not only with your book, but with the half dozen or so that are out. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to, uh, to know and publish with, with Haywire Books? Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned SIBA as well. I was just thinking when you and I met at SIBA, I think it was September of 2019. So it a was. over a year ago, but it, it seems like it was ages ago, doesn't it? Because so much has happened since then. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was at SIBA with Haywire Books with Mark Powell and John Seeley. Uh, we had a table there and um, I am so fortunate that I ended up with uh, publishing The Good Luck Stone through Haywire. I think that John Seeley has done just a remarkable job with it. I mean, with all aspects, really. And, of course, there are so many of the business aspects that I'm not even privy to as one of his authors. But I will say that I've been really pleased with, as you say, the, the publicity and marketing support the cover design, you know, just really every step of the process. I feel like Haywire is committed to putting out really quality works. Um, The Merciful just came out or is about to come out. I'm excited for that one. You know, Mark Powell's book, Patricia Henley. Um, It's just I'm really fortunate to be associated with them. And the other thing I would say is, John, in addition to being – a good publisher is also a very good editor. And I, as I work on new uh, short stories or novels, um, after having worked with John, it's funny because I find myself sort of hearing John's voice in my ear about certain things, which I love. Um, so I think he's, he's impacted my writing in a way that I think is positive and 
So it's been, that's been a nice surprise too, even, you know, on the editorial side. That's about the highest praise I think you can give an editor that you, you as a writer sort of internalize uh, the best parts of what they bring to your writing. Pat Conroy had that relationship with three of, of his editors, Nantalise and Jonathan Galassi, uh, among them, certainly probably the best known among them. Um, and he sort of described the same thing, sort of hearing their voices when, when he as a writer started to go astray. Uh, and that, that speaks volumes about what kind of an editor and indeed what kind of a writer John is as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just he's very perceptive. He's a close reader and he hones in on things that, I don't know anybody else had ever mentioned to me or if they had not in a way that was as memorable as John doing it. And, uh, you know, he notices the little ticks that you do, the little habits that you don't even realize. Um, but then he also, he, he strikes that really good balance between, you know, reminding you to uh, me, I, I need this sort of reminder to, um, you know, remind the reader of where we are physically in the scene or, you know, just things like that that make each scene um, stronger. I want to say even more cinematic, if you will, which kind of makes sense when you read John's work. It is very cinematic, I believe. You can really picture the story unfolding as, as though it's a movie before you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might be a good time to point out that a week from today, next Wednesday, January 27th, the Conroy Center is hosting John Seeley in support of his new novel, The Merciful, in conversation with another one of our friends, Bryn McLean, author of One Good Mama Bone, and that will be live-streamed on the Conroy Center Facebook page, or you can register through our Facebook page and join us in the Zoom room as well. But we definitely want to talk to John uh, that evening about the origin of Haywire Books, too, and this, this remarkable group of what's now a half dozen books, including yours, including the Good Luck Stone, that have come out so quickly from this, this really young and ambitious press. With our time left, and we've got about eight minutes, uh, I'd love to talk about another writer who I mentioned briefly in, in our introduction. That's Ron Rash, who you've come to know and, and published some pieces on as well. How did you come to know Ron? How did you come to be interested in him and ultimately an advocate for him as well? Well, I have been a fan of Ron Rash's work just as a reader for a long time. Um, I don't know. I really where I was introduced to him, I'm sure it was this being uh, another North Carolina writer probably initially, but um, from the first book I read of his, which was, I guess, One Foot and Eden, I was uh, captivated really by his use of language and um, engrossing story. I mean, just, just all of it, the character development. Um, and so he's definitely, he's always been one of those writers to me that as soon as I hear he has a new book coming out, whether it's short fiction, novel, poetry, whatever it is, <laughs> uh, I know that you know I have to get it immediately and we'll just immediately devour it. Um, so I've always been a big fan. I started sort of studying just for my own benefit and then started writing and presenting a little bit about how he uses landscape and the natural world in his books and I did a presentation for the American Comparative Literature Association uh, at Georgetown University about about that, about the use of landscape in the short story collection Burning Bright, particularly the story called Ascent. And, you know, there's just so much great material there. I mean, obviously, 
Ron Rash uses landscape and the natural world in a lot of really fascinating ways. It's one of those topics, as soon as you have that in your mind and you go back and you read his work, you almost just can't help but make notes in the margin or flag certain passages or or maybe that's just me, you know, the English major never dies, right? Um, but I, I have a lot of fun doing that. And I also, I think it probably helps me as a writer too, probably in some unconscious way, subconscious ways um, in terms of how I use the natural world or landscape in my own writing. Um, I have met him just a handful of times. Uh, Jeremy Jones, who um, wrote Bear Walla, uh, introduced me to Ron Rash at Gardner Webb one evening. Ron Rash was there mm. to receive an award, and he was um, lovely and generous. And at the time, we shared an agent. We were working with the same agent, and so we had that in common. We're able to talk about that. And then I've met him just very briefly, you know, at other events and sort of in a shy, embarrassed way, shared a little bit with him about the the work I've presented about his work, um, but really just, just as a reader and, and as a fan of his. Ron is so wonderfully supportive to his readers, and he's one of those writers who recognizes the value of, of having scholarship created in support of his work, of being a part of that world, too, uh, when I was director of University of South Carolina Press, we published um, Understanding Ron Rash and the Ron Rash Reader and sort of several works that were really geared toward a, an academic audience. And Ron was so supportive of the whole process. And he's become a great friend to the Conroe Center, as he certainly was a great friend uh, to Pat as well. Um, but Ron, um, I remember seeing Ron do a reading at a small town bookstore in, in South Carolina in Seneca for about 12 people. And I had seen him do a reading for about 200 people at a book festival. And it was just a couple weeks before that. It was exactly the same Ron Rash. There was, there was mm-hmm. no difference between the way he is with a small group versus a big mm-hmm. group. He's so grateful for, for every single reader that he has. It's really just a, a remarkably good model of how to how to be a good literary citizen, uh, and I'm I always struck that. by that when I when I see Ron. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I, I would say Ron would probably welcome any conversation with you, Heather. I can't imagine <laughs> being anything other than that. Right. Yes, he's very gracious. He is indeed. He and George Singleton are such a, a remarkable. Uh, remarkable friendship as well to circle back around the idea of friendship, which we spent most of the hour talking about. Um, you know, people I think can forget that Ron is funny because uh, his writing is not always that funny. He tends to get into very dark territory. Although the early short stories, um, mm-hmm. Chemistry and uh, The Night the New Jesus Fell to Earth, those collections have a lot of humor in them. That sort of comes and goes in Ron, but George seems to bring that out of him. It does seem to be in there with, uh, with the right pairing of, of conversation partner. Wow. Yeah. What, what a pair that is for sure. Yes, indeed. Uh, my sort of, my favorite uh, Ron and George story uh, as we sort of near the end of our hour here is that Ron always describes, as I'm sure you've heard many times, that so many of his stories begin as a sort of visual moment. He sort of sees something and then has to, take it upon himself as storyteller to figure out what he's seeing. And sort of the classic example of that is Serena, which began for Ron as a vision of a woman on horseback, sort of powerfully standing by herself and trying to figure out who she was and why she was there. 
And he told that mm-hmm. story in front of George in an audience once, and George jumped in immediately and said, you know, I also always begin with an image. I once had an image of Ron having an image of a woman on a horseback and trying to figure out what Ron was looking at, and that was the origin of the story, <laughs> which is completely made up, of course, but it, it's indicative right. <laughs> of the relationship those two have. That's great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I get the sense with the folks in your circle, Kimberly Brock, Julie Cantrell, some of the folks we've gotten to talk about, that you have those kinds of supportive relationships too. You have the writers who are always on your side and that's a really wonderful thing to have in this strange it's literary invaluable. world of ours. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, with our last minute or so, can you give us some indication of what you're working on right now? What's next for you? Well, I'm working on a new novel um, set in Western North Carolina, which is where I'm from. And that's um, shaping up. It's changing a lot as I go. But uh, I'm also working on a lot of short stories these days. And um, one day would like to put a collection together, but that's probably a ways down the road. I wish you well with that. And I certainly want to see uh, more of your writing soon. I've so enjoyed this conversation. I've certainly enjoyed the Good Luck Stone. And I'm so grateful to you for introducing me to it about a year ago at SEBA and uh, for making the time for this conversation tonight. So let me quickly point out that you do have a website, a fabulous, beautiful website at that, heatherbelladams.com, where our listeners can go and learn more about you, your writing, and your books. And thank you again, Heather, for being on the podcast this evening. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. This time has just flown by, and I've just had uh, the best time chatting with you. Um, Just really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. I'm grateful to you for it. I'll be back here on the show next month, February 24th. Until then, everybody, take care. Find your friends out there.